Amen. I'm a little jealous of our director here. She's gotten more amens in about 10 minutes than I've gotten in a whole long time of preaching. Amen. And just if you thought that uh, uh, Beth was uh, being facetious about her African roots, she has African roots. You talk with her about that. So I'd ask that you would take God's word into your hand this morning and turn to the book of Ezra. If you don't know where the book of Ezra is, we're going to do something my Sunday school teacher used to do, and she would walk us through those uh, obscure Old Testament books. And she'd start going, all right, class, open your Bibles to the book of Genesis and start moving to your right. And we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra. That's where we're going to be at this morning. So open your Bibles to the book of Ezra, chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verse 10, and then we're going to go a little more to our right to the book of Nehemiah, and I'll get you there. It's only one more book over, so it should be pretty easy to find. Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10. This morning, we have been in a series. We took a week off for our missions conference last week. But we have been in a series about biblical preaching. And I've tried to do a parallel of two sorts with you. One, to talk about the importance of the role uh, that anyone like myself plays in preaching the Word of God and making sure that we understand what true and biblical preaching is all about. But as we learned about in the story of Jonah, in the life of Jonah, that all of us are proclaimers. We may have different congregations, we may have different pulpits, we may have uh, different titles, but all of us have been called to our own Nineveh, our own group of Assyrians that we are called to proclaim to. And likewise, as we look at the life of Ezra this morning, we are going to see that this isn't just teaching for me or any teacher who opens God's Word and proclaims it to a group of people, but it's for all of us. Many of you know that I'm in the food service business along with preaching. I like what the director said, that we're going to get some food this morning. She must have seen my notes. The National Provisioner magazine told us, uh, as food service people, on their front cover of October's magazine, it had a, a plate of food, a big white plate, and in the middle was the smallest amount of food you have ever seen, with all kinds of greens and all kinds of colors and shapes and sizes contorted into this little thing called dinner. And the front cover said, enough of the foo-foo. Give them what they need. And I thought about that for a moment. And I thought about, there's nothing worse, and as you look at my physique, there is nothing worse than getting a big plate of nothing with a little food. And someone wants to make a little piece of something look nice, so they start carving it up and putting little flowers and sprigs of parsley on it, and they call it a meal. I can assure you that is no meal. And if you think that is a meal, you're no man, even you women. (laughs) And yet, as I read the article, it said, Our customers come to us for food. Give it to them and give them a lot of it. You know, we live in a society today in our evangelical world where we are more focused in on what the plate looks like than what's actually on the plate. We're more focused in on making sure that our programs and our little ministries that we have have a sprig of parsley here and there, but we forget the meat and the potatoes. Sorry, Keith, the meat and the potatoes of the meal. And that's what biblical preaching and teaching is all about. We live in a society, I, I watch so, uh, what I would call so-so Christian television, and I see more people talking about exercise routines and diets that Jesus would endorse than people opening up the Word of God and saying, Thus saith the Lord. The Bible says don't taste and see that exercise or certain diets are good. It says taste and see that the Lord is good. And yet we have 
churches in our, in our society and in our culture that find themselves starving people even today. People who come in dead and lost in their trespasses and sin. They don't need a sprig of parsley or a little pick-me-up this morning. They need the living and active Word of God that says Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, the chief one being me. And if we would teach and we would proclaim that, then we would see revival and restoration. Ezra was a man who lived in a time where the Word of God was in a spirit of famine. We know that in the book of Ezra, Ezra was called the second Moses. He was the second Moses because he was the one who reintroduced the law that Moses one day before him had instituted. We know that Ezra was a scribe. His job, his goal, his focus was to be a man of the Word. I don't know what more about uh, Ezra, but every time that we see Ezra being spoken about in the text, it refers back to him with the Word. One thing you should always desire in your preachers and your teachers, and for that matter, even as Christians, is we may be known for our occupation. We may be known where we live. We may be known that we've got quite a great hook shot in basketball or we're really good at, at finances, or whatever it may be, but let everything be secondary to the fact that people say, Tim, or Bob, or Karen, or Tony are people of the Word. The Bible says Ezra was well-skilled in the law of the Lord, well-versed. We're going to look at that this morning. So I'd ask that we would stand for the reading of God's Word this morning and look at Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. It says, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Let me read that again. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, and to the teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Let's pray. Father God, we stand before You this morning in reverence to Your holy Word. Lord, this isn't just some letter. This isn't just some historical writing that is taking place. But this is the Spirit of Almighty God who has spoken through the uh, penmanship of men the very words and thoughts of God. So, Lord, I pray that we would come before you this morning open and ready to receive, to not just hear a sermon, but to hear from our Lord and Savior this morning. So, Father, I pray that I would be out of the way this morning. I pray that, that I would not be seen this morning and that you would be given the glory. You would be given the honor. And, Lord, that we would be changed and people of the word like Ezra was. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. If we live in a society, if we find ourselves in churches where the plate of food is much smaller than what we would hope it would be, what are we to do about it? In the next passage that I'm going to be looking at, Nehemiah chapter 8, and a couple points here, we'll get to that passage. The people hear Ezra say, bring out the book. That's what our goal should be. When we come here on Sunday mornings, our focus and our goal should be, and our cry of our heart should be, bring out the book. We should be people who don't want to just hear from others on a stage, but that we would cry out, bring out the book. When we wake up in the morning, when we find ourselves in troubled times, when we find ourselves in good times, the saying that we should have is what the Israelites said, bring out the book. We call ourselves Village Bible Church, and thus we, if we want to stay true to our name, must be people who say, bring out that book. That old, old story that I love to hear. Well, how do we do it? 
It involves three things. The first thing this morning that we must do, if we want to see a bad, a pattern of biblical preaching and teaching, is we must cultivate, we must cultivate a passion that makes the Word our greatest priority. Our greatest priority. You know, Ezra lived during a time, if you want to understand, uh, some of you may not know, the Old Testament was not written chronologically. It wasn't like uh, uh, it all started out in Genesis and moved on. We know that the book of Ezra was a book and was a man who lived some 30 years after Queen Esther. He was a generation after Queen Esther. He was a full 50 years after the prophet Jeremiah. So he would have looked back and he would have known and, and possibly maybe even seen as a young man the prophet Jeremiah. Now we know that when Ezra was written, we know that Ezra lived during a time where the Israelites were in the Babylonian captivity. We know that other prophets lived in that time as well. Jeremiah, Daniel, we know that uh, here even Ezra and Nehemiah lived under that time. A couple years ago, I, I took us through a study of the book of Haggai. Haggai and Zerubbabel, what a name, I love that name, Zerubbabel, took a group of people some 90 years, I believe, before Ezra would come back to Israel to start building the temple. We know that Nehemiah came back with Ezra on the second trip of bringing people back from modern-day Iraq back to Israel to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So Ezra comes back. And this is a time where there's some great excitement going on, but there's also kind of a ho-hum sense the reason why is, is they thought, how long will it be until we're taken over again? How long will it be until we find ourselves in captivity once again? But there was excitement. We could build. We could rebuild the temple. We could uh, be a part of some great things that God would have. And we see restoration and revival take place. So Ezra is a key part of it. We see three things out of this text about Ezra's pursuit of the Word. Look at verse 10 again. It says, For Ezra had devoted himself. Underline that word with me this morning if you underline. He devoted himself. The word in the NAS and the New King James gives the idea of setting his heart. He set his heart towards the study of the law of the Lord. What does that mean, he devoted himself? Well, we understand as we look at that word, it means to be firmly committed. He was committed to the law of the Lord. Can you say that this morning? Could it be written in Timothy chapter 7, verse 10, that Tim was devoted to the study of the law of the Lord? Can you say that for yourself? There are good days that I can say it, and there frankly are days that I can't say that. But Ezra, the word of the Lord says, was devoted. He set his heart on the study of the Lord. The idea here in this word devoted literally means a determined pursuit. One of the modern day commentators that I read said he zeroed in on it. He was focused like a uh, target uh, shooter who sits there and, and spends a whole lot of time getting ready and getting focused, making sure his aim is just right so that he hits the target. He's zeroed in. Now, that's the first choice we can have. Because there's two options when it comes to being students and people of the Word. We can say that we want to be devoted. And that our all-out pursuit, we're going to set our heart. This idea of heart in the other translations literally means the whole gamut of emotions and choices and decisions that are made come from the desire to seek out the Word of the Lord. That's the first choice. But turn for a moment back to 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14. Just going to go back a couple pages to 2 Chronicles chapter 12. And verse 14. You say, okay, Tim, haven't I done enough? We, we go to a church that, that makes sure we preach and teach the Word of God. Everywhere I go at Village Bible Church, someone's opening the Bible. Someone's saying, we just can't fellowship today. We've got to get into the Word. Isn't that good enough? And I would say, no, that's not good enough. Each one of us should have an unflinching uh, desire and purpose to seek out the Word of the Lord. Why? Because look at what happens in verse 14. 
speaking of this King Rehoboam. And look at what it says. Uh, King Rehoboam established himself in verse 13 firmly in Jerusalem and continued at, as king. He was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city the Lord I had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Naaman, and she was an Ammonite. And look at what it says in verse 14. He did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. You want to find victory over temptation? You want to find yourself in an abundant Christian life? Then don't live as this man did, not setting your heart on the things of the Lord, but live like Ezra, who set his heart, who fixed his pursuit on the word and the study of Almighty God. This idea here is that it's an all-consuming pursuit. It's all-consuming. That's what we see in our text this morning. It is an all-consuming pursuit. Next, we see that it's careful. We see it's all-consuming, and then we see it's careful. Look at what it says in verse 10 of Ezra 7. It says, for Ezra devoted himself, he was, he was vigilant in pursuing the study of the Lord. Now look at what it says. It says, to the study. What, what does that mean, to the study? It means in verse 10, literally means to seek with care, to inquire. What it means is, is he was to investigate what the Word said. Now what, what is going on here is that he wasn't just learning it to be able to just memorize it and to share it, wrote, and anybody asked what the Word said. But he was to study it. He was to investigate the details of what God was saying in His Word. This word investigate is a pretty um, ironic term because we see in uh, the book of, I believe it's First Chronicles, I don't have it in, um, yes I do, Second Samuel 11 verse 3, turn there for a moment. 2 Samuel verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 3. If you're in Ezra, you're going to go back about four books to 2 Samuel. This word is seen only a couple times in the Old Testament. And we see it again in the positive with Ezra to the studying of God's Word. But then we see an investigation taking place in verse 3 of 2 Samuel 11. Look at what it says, starting in verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone, the NIV says, to find out about her. You know, we've got people in our midst today who find themselves seeking after, investigating everything under the sun except the Word of the Lord. We have people that watch TV and, and see uh, Oprah say something or Dr. Phil say something to go to this website or to read this book, and people flock to the bookstores. I was reading a Newsweek article that said, you want to hit gold, you make sure you get on Oprah's book club because every one of the last seven Oprah book club authors have become multimillionaires as a result. And yet when God's Word says something, how you doing? Nice to meet you. When God's Word says something, what do we do? Well, that's nice. That was good. And we don't investigate it and see what the Word of the Lord says. Ezra was devoted to the studying of the Word of the Lord. So we see that it's all-consuming. We see that it was careful. This involves searching with care. Make sure that you investigate. This is the role of the preacher especially. My job is I can't get up and just give these warm and fuzzy homilies or uh, warm and fuzzy messages without seeking with care what the Word of the Lord says. That's why the Bible says in the book of James that if you're going to be a teacher, you better watch out and you better make sure you know what you're doing and your motives are right and your heart is right. Why? Because it says that you are under a stricter judgment as a teacher. Wow, what words for us, of those who open the Word of God before anybody else. It is a fearful thing to know that there is a judgment. It's bad enough to be under the ordinary judgment of God, let alone a stricter judgment because I'm a teacher. We must be careful in our study. The final thing we see is it was comprehensive. Look at verse 10 again. 
It says in Ezra 7.10, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws. In Israel, there are three things that he shares with us this morning. He studied everything. The laws of the Lord, it says. Secondly, the decrees. And third, it says, finally, all uh, the laws in Israel. This is comprehensive. Now, he could have just said he studied the word of the Lord. But in the Israelite culture, there were other uh, books that were written about God and how to live off of what, excuse me, the word of the Lord, the law of Moses had said. And we see Ezra devotes himself and he makes sure that not only does he study the word of the Lord, but if there's anything written about his God, he wants to read it as long as it has had careful study. Now, this is very important for me as a preacher and and for anybody who's teaching. You know, we find ourselves reading Christian books, but do we find ourselves reading and teaching the Bible it's easy to go and pick up a book at family bookstores or, or Lemstone or, or the Berean store and to go and find someone who's already put everything together and preach it. And that's okay. I'm utilizing a book called Famine in the Land right now for this series. And it's all right to do, but make sure that you're studying and you're taking care of the, the studying of the Word and that there's something coming from you. There's a website that is uh, on the Internet called SermonCentral.com. And it boasts hundreds of thousands of pastors going to this website and picking off sermons, one from another, and using them in their pulpits. And what they are is full manuscripted messages on any topic that you can think of, uh, over a couple hundred thousand sermons at, at a click of a mouse. And then in the small print you will see, Don't let this take away from your own study. Are you kidding me? If I had a uh, termpaper.com, and I'm not sure, I'm glad the internet wasn't around because I would have been looking for that one. (laughs) And I could find writing as a student, here you go, Wheaton, if I could find a a place where the, I'm telling them not to do that, okay? I'm telling them not to do that. She's getting nervous. She She knows, she's heard my preaching before. She's getting nervous. If we could find... A paper. Are we going to write our own paper if we can find it? Probably not. And if you do, it's kind of dumb. Why are you wasting your time? Just write the paper. And yet sermon after sermon, we find preachers who are too busy doing the other things in the ministry and not being comprehensive in the study and in the work of the Word. John MacArthur once said, in a conference, that the greatest spiritual gift that any preacher or teacher can have is to keep your butt in the chair until the job is done. I like that. And he said butt, by the way. It's sanctified if MacArthur says it. There's a whole lot of Saturday nights. I wish I didn't have that spiritual gift. That I would just go and just make up something, but I have a heart, and I want you to know this. I have a heart to not only myself be devoted to the Word, but I come here and I see that there are hurts and there are pains, and people are coming, and don't ever let this change from your vocabulary. Tim, bring the book. I hope that our Sunday school classes and our small groups are full of people that a leader or a teacher can't just say, you know what, we'll just kind of fly by the seat of our pants this afternoon or this morning or this evening, and we're not even going to get into the Word of the Lord. I hope that small groups and Bible study groups and Sunday school classes will push that teacher to say, don't bring your words, bring the book. That's when a church grows. That's when a church becomes on fire for the Lord. It must be comprehensive. There's a second thing we see this morning. I'm going to look at this text again from another way. The second thing we see this morning is we must be willing to commit to practicing what we preach. We must be willing to commit to practicing what we preach. Look at what it says in verse 10. It says, He devoted Himself, and it first says, to the study. But then it says, and to the observance of the law. One of the other uh, translations says it was also to the study and to the practice of the law. The practice of the law of the Lord. We are to practice what we preach. This is seen 
uh, in our text this morning, first of all, we see it is a personal obedience. It is one thing to preach a sermon or to teach a Sunday school class or to lead a small group. It is another to live like you've taught. It's easy to say, oh, yeah, make sure you get into the Word this week, group. It's easy to tell your Sunday school class that they need to live lives of holiness. But if we're not living that way, then we're bankrupt. We've got nothing. Think for a moment, Stan, I was thinking about you. Where is Stan at? There you are. Stan, I was thinking about you on Saturday. And I know that scares you. Stan's a banker. How many of you would go to Stan to talk about financial information, to get a loan if he's homeless and he has no money himself? You're going to say, how can I go to you and seek help from you if you've got nothing? If you haven't been successful in what you're trying to share? How about the guy on the side of the road with a broken down jalopy who owns Joe's car shop? How many of you are going to go there if you see Joe on the side of the road every week with his car broken down? We wouldn't. We'd say, get your life in order before you start working on someone else's car. Stan, get your life in order before you start telling people how they should work with their finances. And yet, what do we do? We find ourselves so many times going and making sure we preach and teach before we ever get to practicing. Notice the progression here, folks. It's prompt. There is a prompt obedience that happens in our text. It says study. It doesn't say then teach. But it says study, observe, or practice, and then preach or proclaim or teach. It's very important that we remember that. It's very important that we realize that. That as teachers and preachers, as leaders in the church, before we go and start doing something on a corporate level, that we make sure that we do it on a singular level. Before we start crying for holiness in a church setting, that we make sure we cry it out in a singular setting. This is of great importance for us as a church. It's of greatest importance for us as teachers and leaders. There's no question that when God uh, designed the work of the church and brought leaders into it, He said, make sure you are able as an elder to take care of your household well. Make sure your household is in order. Why? What does Paul say? Because you have no right if your household is not in order to serve in the household of God and lead it in that way. Singular obedience and focus before we get to the corporate one. It is a prompt one. Don't sit around waiting for it. Notice what it says in verse 10 again. He was uh, devoted. It shows us it was passionate obedience. Ezra just doesn't do what it says because he has to. Because it says that he's a scribe. Well, I guess i got to be obedient because that's what my job entails me to do. The job of the Christian is not to be devoted to the work of the Lord and the Word of the Lord. It's not to be devoted to the commands of the Lord just because we're a Christian. And that's what Christians do. That is a duty. God doesn't want us in the life of duty. He wants us to find delight in His Word. Delight in living out and breathing and, and eating upon the Word of the Lord. God doesn't want to, He's not sitting there forcing us saying, you better do this, and if you don't, I'm going to make your life uh, a, a living tragedy. He's not saying that. What He's saying is, I want you to delight in My Word. That's what the psalmist kept saying. I delight in Your Word. I delight in the laws from the Lord. I delight, I delight, I delight. Ezra didn't just study because his job required him to do it, but because he loved it. Can you say that about your time in the devotions? Can you say that in the times that you're leading your small group or your Sunday school class or the teaching of young children that it isn't, man, why did I sign up for this? If that is your spirit this morning and you are a part of any teaching ministry here at Village Bible Church, it is better that you just say, you know what, this isn't for me. I'd rather have my Saturday nights off. I'd rather just make sure that I can come and just hang out and fellowship. Don't think that you have to do it. Even if that means we've got to connect some classes together and make sure that we've got teachers. We'll find teachers. We'll find people, first of all, who are willing and who are passionate about teaching and preaching and proclaiming the Word of the Lord. 
But what about us in our workplaces and in our schools? Do we look at following the laws of the Lord? Do we look at, at following the word of the Lord because we have to? Because we know what the Word says. It says that if we do such things, we incur a judgment and wrath upon us. Well, I better do those things. Ezra had it right. He was devoted to it. His heart was set to it. He was passionate about it. But it wouldn't be too long there later, about 500 years, where Jesus would say in Matthew 15:8, speaking of the Pharisees, you got it up here, but your hearts are bankrupt. Sadly, in our world today, we've got a lot of Christians who've got it all upstairs, but it never reaches the heart. And I would say, and you may get upset with me, that is a demonic faith. The demons believe, but they don't believe where it's right and where it needs to be. The the Bible, Haddon Robinson, Bible, Haddon Robinson, one and the same. No, I'm just kidding. Kidding. Haddon Robinson once said that theology... Learned isn't real theology until it's lived. And if you think just learning the basic doctrines of the faith and making sure you understand church history is important, theology isn't theology. The study of God isn't the study of God until it's been lived out. Let us be a church that lives out and pursues an obedience to God. The final one that we see is an obedience that is plenary. I used a big word. Wheaton was going to be here, and I thought I better show myself using some big words. Plenary. What it means is, it's a word that starts with P. That helps my little outline. Last time I did that, you guys started messing around with my outline. So I said, I'm going to find a word that starts with a P. And what it means is to be complete. It means to be full to be taken care of from all sides. It's, it's a complete word. And what it literally means is that when we look at what Ezra was doing, he didn't pick and choose what he wanted to believe. It says that he uh, studied the word of the Lord. It says he devoted himself to the study, to observing the law of the Lord, to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And that's what we need to be doing as people. We can't have six out of the Ten Commandments. We can't have uh, three out of the four one another commands and say, you know what, I got 75%. That's pretty good. The Bible talks about radical discipleship and radical holiness. And the Bible says that we are to be perfect as God our Father is perfect in heaven. Well, how do we do that? By the work of the Spirit. And do we reach that perfection? No, we've got this flesh on us that will continue to wage war. But our desire and our goal, we should be devoted to being able to say, as Ezra did, I am devoted to all that the Lord (coughs) has said. And I'm going to live that out. And I'm going to pursue that with all my heart. It means following the ways of the Lord when bad news comes. It means following the ways of the Lord when good times happen. It means when money's short, and it means when money is full. It means following the ways of the Lord when the kids are good and the kids are bad. It means following the ways of the Lord when the church is full and when the church is empty. It means following the ways of the Lord when you're with other Christians or with a group of unbelievers. Ezra devoted himself to the study and the observance to obeying the law of the Lord. Can that be said of us this morning? That no matter who's looking, no matter where we're at, no matter what company we keep, that people would say he or she is devoted to following the ways of the Lord. One final thing we see this morning is point number three. And that is if we want to be involved in the pattern of carrying out God's plans We have to be willing to carry out God's plan to proclaim His message. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the book of Nehemiah. Go to your right. You're going to go through a couple more chapters of Ezra. You're going to get to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8. (coughs) 
How do we get to be like Ezra? How do we get there this morning? I know that for the vast majority of us here who find ourselves here every week, there's a desire. There's a desire to live holy lives, upright lives. There's a desire to follow the ways of the Lord. Because if that wasn't our desire, even if there's even a sense of duty that I need to go, we would have given up a long time ago. So how do we get to be like Ezra, who devotes himself to the study, the observance, and to the teaching of the Word of God? Ezra, uh, we see, uh, comes up again in Nehemiah 8. We're going to look at what it says We know that people have come back to Israel at this point from Babylon. In verse um, 66 of Ezra 7, it says that there was a company that numbered more than 42,360 men, that there were another 7,000 men servants and maidservants, 245 singers, that's quite a choir, and all kinds of horses, mules, camels, and donkeys. This is a large group of people. And they've gathered together, and look at what it says at the start of chapter 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others, so they, and all who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him to his right stood, and I'm just going to give you Tim's translations of these names, Matt, Shem, Anna, Yuri, he was one of the Russian Jews there. Our friend Hilk, our other friend Moss, and on the left there was Ped, Mish, Malk, Hash, Hesh, Zach, and who can forget Mesh. So what happens? Ezra opens the book. And all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. A couple months ago I was reading uh, Nehemiah 8. Verse 5, and I said, why? It would be good if the Lord says that His people stood for the reading of God's Word. It'd be good for us to do the same thing. That's where that came from. If you wonder if I just have flights of fancy of getting you to do gymnastics, that's where that comes from. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And we got some more names here. The Levites. Jesh, Bain, Sherry, uh, Jammin, I like Jammin, that's a cool name. Akub, uh, or Akub, uh, Shab, Hod, Mas, Kel, Az, Jazabad, Han, and Pel, they're all great guys. They instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. Now listen to what it says in verse 8. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food. Underline that word. I just want to help some of our uh, vegetarians. The word choice food in the Hebrew means fatty meat. For you teetotalers, sweet drinks, and that ain't Pepsi. And send to those who have nothing prepared. For this day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve. Let's read this together. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let me close with this point this morning. We need to proclaim the message of what God says. And there are four very quick steps to do that. First of all, revere the Word. It involves revering the Word of God. Now I know that we are from a, we're a Protestant church. We are not a high church. We have never, in all the years that I've been here, ever carried down the Bible above our hands, kissed it, genuflected when we've put it down, or done anything like that. But that doesn't mean we don't revere the Word of God. We are a Bible church. 
in our bloodline should be the, uh, the uh, reverence for the Word of God. So that means bring your Bible to church. Make sure your Bible doesn't sit on the coffee table and never be read. Revere it. These are the living and active words of our God. This is it. There's nothing more. This is what He has said. And He has fit to close this canon and say, this is what I've said. Now meditate on these until I come back to get you. And yet so many of us find ourselves taking the Word after we're done on a Sunday morning, tossing it in the back seat, only to look back to make sure we know where it went so we can find it when we're scrambling for it on Sunday. It's not a reverence for the Word. Look at what it says they did. There's a place of prominence given to the Word. Verse 4, He stood on a high wooden platform. Look at what it says, built for the occasion. Many commentators say that is uh, that I'm breaking that law right now. And that's the place of the pulpit. That there should be a place. Now, do I think that it has to be uh, uh, an actual place? Okay, yeah. This is a place of worship. We call this place the sanctuary. We kind of like it that there's not an ability to do anything else in this room. Why? Because this room has been dedicated to the worship of God. And I, you know, I don't mind multi-purpose rooms, and, and many churches have to do that to conserve space. But I love it that we haven't had to do that. There aren't basketball hoops or anything going up here to be able to do that. The floor doesn't work real well for some of us anyway to do that. But that we have a place where the Word is taught. Notice what else happens. There's a, there's a posture. They all stand. When, when people stood, literally when it says that they were as one man in verse 1, it was a sign of unity and it was a sign of reverence that something was going to be said and that in the Hebrew culture to sit or to recline meant you were at a place of casualness. And they said, you know what? It's not time to be casual for the word of the Lord is to be read. It is time that we stand. They didn't want to be casual about it. And finally, we see it brought praise. Verse 6, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted up their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Is there praise when you read the Word? When you open the Word, is there praise that says, Thus saith the Lord. To God be the glory for the things that He has written. That I would live out of obedience. Is there a posture? Is there a place of prominence? that you find the Word of God has in your life. It may not be a special place that you call your little prayer closet. And I don't think that's the issue. But is there a place of prominence? Is there a place in time of prominence that comes that you can study the Word of God? Or is it when you get to it? Or if you don't get to it? Next we see reading of the Word. Reading of the Word, the Bible. Look at what it says in verse 2 and 3. And then also in verse 18. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who could understand. He read it from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Verse 18, day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. Let's stop there. Three things that we need to understand about reading the Bible. Number one, it should be done daily. Verse 18, they read it day after day. When was the last time you read the Word of the Lord? Was it today? Was it yesterday? Was it last week? These people understood God's talking. It's time we listen. And so we're going to come back. Now remember, they didn't have the Bible in their hand. They had to go back to where Ezra was at and plead, say, bring out the book. We want to hear more of it. And yet we have the Word of God in our hands. And we've become so lax and so casual with it. It was read daily. Look at the duration of time. Verse 3, from daybreak, that's about 6 in the morning, till noon. And you thought my sermons were long. Six hours they devoted themselves to the study and the hearing of the Word. That's good for us to hear. But look at how they listened. Verse 3, there was a demeanor. 
It was done attentively. It was done attentively. It doesn't say that Ezra was a great speaker or a dynamic reader of the Word. It doesn't say, excuse me, that uh, his sermon worked within the half an hour time frame that the Israelites um, ADD would allow them to sit and hear it. It says for six hours they listened attentively to the Word. Is that your heart? Is that your desire to come and to say, I am here to worship. I am here to read the Word of the Lord. I am here to, to listen to what the Word of God has to say to me. Not so I can get a head knowledge, but so I can walk out of this place and love Jesus to the point of transformation, love each other to the point of sacrifice, and love my neighbor to the point of action. Is that our desire? It involves reading the Word. Next, it involves reiterating the truths of Scripture. Look at verse 8. It says, They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear, giving the meaning so that it could be understood. Very quickly, there are are, uh, three things that every good teacher or preacher is to do. Six times it tells us that the people were to understand. Job number one, the job of the preacher or teacher is to make the passage clear. To make it clear. Second, to give the meaning. And third, to apply to the people's lives. Write that somewhere in your Bible. You leave this church or, or as you continue to critique the preaching that goes on in this place, ask those three questions. Did the preacher give a clear meaning to the text? Do I understand a, a little more now what Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 means? Secondly, once we've given, uh, we've made the passage clear, we need to give the meaning. If we articulate, that's, that's the importance of going back to the original languages to make sure that our translation, that we understand the Hebrew and Greek words are, 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 are languages are so amazing. And so full of understanding and definition that we need to understand that. But if it stops there, then you've just become a whole lot smarter. But it must be applied to the life of the hearer. Give the meaning, make the passage clear, and apply it to people's lives. That's what Ezra did. He preached the Word, and he did it right. Finally, it involves responding in the right way. Verse 9, after he's done this, Ezra the scribe and priest The Levites who were instructing them said, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord. Understand, true biblical preaching is sometimes going to cause you to weep. It's going to cause us to mourn. It's going to cause us to wail. When we hear, as we did in Romans chapter 1 just some weeks ago, that the wrath of God is being poured out on all godlessness and wickedness, that should cause us to weep. But there are times when the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God should cause us to be joyful. They start crying. They hear the stories, commentators tell us. They hear the stories of how their sin had brought them into captivity. And they start weeping. And one of the commentators said that probably what was happening was there was mass confession. Lord, don't let it happen again. We don't want to go back there. And what does Ezra say? At the end of his message, he says, For the joy of the Lord is our strength. And in the calendar, it was the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a time of great rejoicing. And this is what bugs me about modern preaching these days, is because what happens and what I hear by so many prominent people is, man, you guys get it so tough every day of the week. The last thing we want to do is make you feel sorry on Sunday. So we're going to preach positive messages. There are positive passages in the Scriptures, but there are also ones that cut to the heart and make us bleed. And that's the kind of preaching that we need. That's the kind of teaching. If you're in a Sunday school class here, or you're in a small group, and all we hear about is, let's not, let's not worry about that issue of sin. Let's not worry about talking about the blood. Let's not worry about the, let's just talk about the good things, the noble things. The noble things are sometimes the most difficult for us to bear. We respond to the Word according to what the Word has told us. Let's pray. Father God, what a morning this morning we've had. 
Father, I thank You for the young people that have come and have proclaimed in song that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That we must be people of the Word. That we must be people who bring out the book. For Lord, it's not good enough for us just to gather together as a group of people and sing some songs, share some announcements, hear a choir sing, and then go have refreshments. It's not enough. But to be in the house of the Lord calls for us to bring out the book. And oh Lord, I pray that that would be our heart's desire, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week, that we would know we've got the Word of the Lord in our hands. And like Ezra, every man, woman, and child would see that, would recognize that, and would cry with all their hearts, bring me the book, open the book, for we want to hear from the Lord this morning. Oh Lord, let that be our heart's cry in every ministry, in every activity, that Your Word would have a place of incredible reverence in this place, that it would have a place of prominence. Because without Your Word, we have no idea how to give You glory or praise. Without Your Word, we would not know of the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the Word of the Lord, we would not know we are, di- di- we are dead, blind, and held captive by the evil one and in need of salvation. So, Lord, this is our compass. This is our guide. This is our only hope. Let us live in light of that in these perilous times to know that Your Word is the only Word that means anything to us today. And that we would live in obedience to it and practice what we preach. Father, it's been good to be here. It's been good to hear your songs given and sung. We look forward to what the choir is going to do in a couple moments during our hour of Sunday school as we hear the word proclaimed in song. So Lord, let us respond as we stand and as we sing to you for your renown and your glory. And all God's people said, Amen.